We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 today. I'd encourage you to go ahead and get your Bibles open there. Uh, I realized last week after I started, I said, we're going to read and then pray. And then I read and was so excited about talking that I didn't pray. So we're going to read and then pray and then we'll start talking. So that's, that's what we'll do. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7 is our passage. That's where we'll be reading. Uh, I'd encourage you to follow along. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But it is God. But God is the one you must fear. Let's pray. Well, Father... We need you. We're in desperate need of you. And you have, not, and you have not left us without an ability to know you or even teaching in how we are to rightly respond to you. I'm grateful for that. I pray that your spirit would work today, that you would do by your spirit what you have promised to do and lead us into your truth. That we might know you better and that we might respond more rightly we might worship you more fully. That, uh, God, in this you would be honored. Your word would be proclaimed. Your people would be shaped in the likeness of your son. And that through that, you would draw people to yourself. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, so Solomon does something really important in this passage. I don't know if you even caught it. I, it took me, I, I have read now Ecclesiastes. I've lost count of the number of times I've read through it. I've read this particular passage. Uh, at le- I, well, I mean, just focusing in on it uh, over and over all week long. And it was probably uh, Wednesday when it dawned on me that there had been a shift, a really important shift. What Solomon has been doing to this point is explaining life to us. He's been explaining from his perspectives what's going on, what he perceives in the world around him. And in this passage, he turns and begins to speak and apply what he's been talking about to our lives. He begins to speak specifically and actually give commands, give instruction to us in a way to live. So just to help you understand why that's so important, uh, in, in preaching classes, every book I've read about preaching, every class I took in seminary that had to do with preaching, there comes this point that distinguishes between just a lecture and a sermon. There's a drastic difference between just a lecture and a sermon, and it's what's happening in this passage. Solomon has been telling us and giving us facts about what life is like under the sun, and now he's going to take his lecture and turn it to a sermon by giving us application. That's the difference. I can come up here every week and I can give you doctrine upon doctrine upon doctrine and never seek to apply it to your life or help you understand why it matters for you in your life. And that's a lecture. You can get that in seminary classes. You can get that in classrooms everywhere, anywhere you go. The difference between a lecture and a sermon is the application, and that's exactly what Solomon's doing. That's why in the beginning, I don't know if you remember this or not, but in the beginning as he opened this book, he called himself the preacher. I, the preacher. He is writing this not as a diary for him to enjoy. He is writing this. He he has been speaking these things to people. He has been making sure these things are known so that people can respond rightly to God, so that they'll see the truth and, and take it into advisement and then apply what he's about to apply to us. When you think about this, what he's taught us to this point, then he certainly taught us some heavy things. Vanity of vanities, all is vanities. There, vanity, there is no gain under the sun. But as he began to prove that thesis statement, as he began to prove that point, he showed us a glorious God who exists beyond it. 
a sovereign God who reigns over all things, a creator God. In fact, he uses the name of God that is associated with him in creation over and over. It's the name he uses every time he refers to God, Elohim. That is the God that Moses used. That's the name of God that Moses used in Genesis. As God is calling light into existence, it is Elohim saying that it is light shine, right? It is Elohim that separates light from dark. It is Elohim that brings the land up out of the waters and separates the, the uh, uh, um, sky from the from the from the waters the waters above from the waters below it is Elohim who, who who brings animals into existence it is Elohim who bows down and breathes life into the dust it's Elohim Solomon has introduced us to this creator god this god that exists above the sun this God who, who everything he does endures forever. This is the God who put everything into motion. The God that everything answers to. The God that determined how the cycles and seasons would flow. He is the sovereign God who, who has given us gifts that we are, are, are to enjoy, that we should enjoy. Over and over he's already told us that it's better for a man just to enjoy the gifts that God has given him. This is his lot in life, he says. And yet he's demonstrated the vanity because we never seem to be satisfied. This is the sovereign God who is control, in control over all the times and seasons that we enjoy and endure. The times of life and the times of death, the times of planting, the times of plucking up. This is the sovereign God who determines what season we find ourselves in. He is the sovereign God who will one day judge our sin. And if you remember these last two weeks, we have dealt personally with our Sin, we've dealt, dealt personally and practically with our sin, how it has divided us from God and it has divided us from each other and, and added to the futility of life. But the sin and suffering and the difficulty we face in this life is not a reason to run from God, but it's a reason to see that God's judgment is coming and, and, and in the right time, at the right time, this God will make all things right according to his standards. Solomon has painted a picture of a glorious God who works outside of the vanity, who works beyond the futility. Because this is the God that, that, that he has shown us, it makes so much sense to me that as he turns and begins to apply these truths, he deals with the issues of worship. I mean, you can see it here, right? So let me just show you that. So the very first command that's given outside of any commands he's speaking to his own soul, the very first application point, he speaks with an imperative voice. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Well, what are they doing at the house of God? That's their worship. He's saying, guard your steps when you're going to worship. And that's capstone at the end of verse, at verse 7, in the end of verse 7, when he says, God is the one you must fear. It's another command, it's another instruction that, this, that, that opens and closes this passage about our response to God. This is what it looks like to live in light of the truths of this great and glorious and sovereign God that I've displayed before you, who lives beyond, who's bigger than, who is creator over his creation, who works beyond vanity, who lives above the futility. You worship him. Worship him. These are commands. He's not giving us an option here. Now, I know, I, I, I get this. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like authority either. There's a part of me that immediately cringes when somebody tells me to do something. There was a, it's not part of my notes, this is extra, you just a, uh, just a story to help you know who I am, I guess. I don't, maybe it'll prove helpful. It's, I was a Cobra mechanic. The first helicopter I ever worked on in the, in the Army was a Cobra attack helicopter. And it had this big red button up at the front of the gunner's window, up by the front of the gunner's compartment. And, and, and it had big yellow and black lines. It was a red button. And it said, do not press. What do you think everybody wants to do? Press it. That's exactly right. Because when we are told not to do something, there's a piece of us that longs to do it. These are commands. He's not giving us an option. And if you can press back against that, well, no, you can't tell me what to do. He did. These are commands. We should listen. But there are warnings as well. He's not just giving us instruction for the sake of giving us instruction. He is warning us that it's imperative that we hear it. 
Solomon has in mind the temple worship. You can see that in verse 5 where he says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. He's, he's, in his mind, he's picturing their worship that takes place in the temple because for them, this is where worship was to take place. This was the ground in which God had said, is mine. This was the ground in which God said, I'm going to show up and you come to be near me. This is what he had in mind. It's the, it's the temple that he had commissioned to have built. It's the temple that he had had a, had a part in playing and seeing it built. It's a beautiful, beautiful temple. But here's the thing. We don't have that today. So can it still apply? Do, do, do these words still matter? Well, yeah, they do. But we have to look at them from a different perspective. We have to look at them less about going to a particular place. This ground that we're standing on, this building that we're sitting in, this is not the temple that, as we would apply it today. This is not the place of, of, that, that worship must take place. It's, it, worship for us is not bound to these four walls. That's not at all what how we need to apply it. There's a passage in the New Testament. You're all likely familiar with it. John chapter 4. Jesus is talking with the Samaritan woman. He's on his way from, from uh, Jerusalem, Judea, going to Galilee, and he passes through Samaria, and he stops and he talks to this woman, this Samaritan woman. And in, in the midst of conversation, she perceives, because he kind of confronts her about sin in her life, he, she perceives that He's a prophet. She's like, oh, I know you're a prophet. And, and, and so she then begins to have a spiritual conversation with him about worship. You can read about this in John chapter 4. It, it, I, I'm summarizing big things, but, but I want you to see something. Because in the conversation about worship, she says, well, hey, we worship here, and the Jews worship there, or the Messiah is going to come, he's going to tell us these things. And, and this is Jesus' response to her. John chapter 4, 21 through 24. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him... Worship in, or those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I, I can't go into everything that that passage touches on, but I want you to see something important. He is talking, he is teaching, he's telling this woman that worship is no longer going to be bound by a location. True worship is not, it's no longer going to be on a mountain or in a temple. True worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. Again, I can't go into all the depths of that, but what, what, I, what you got to see is that Jesus, by his life, death, and resurrection, is bringing worship out of the temple into the public realm. It's into the town that we live in. It's into the places that we inhabit. We are his temple. There's a second thing I want you to see. Just like Solomon did... He is making a distinction. He is giving us a contrast. He is helping us see that there is a difference between true worship and false worship. Worship that is acceptable and worship that isn't acceptable. This is not the passage I'm preaching, so I'm not going to teach it from there, but I'm going to show you how Solomon's doing that. But I think we could summarize this passage up, this, this teaching of Solomon up by realizing this reality. It existed in the Old Testament. It existed in the New Testament. It's not about a place, it's not about a, a place that we go to, but there is something essential about worship that either makes it acceptable or unacceptable, and that is what Solomon is dealing with in this passage. I think we sum it up in this sentence by, by just saying this, worship is not offered, worship not offered, sorry, worship not offered in reverence to God is not received as worship by God, but is just more vanity under the sun. I think that is the point that Solomon's making. I think he is helping us see that there is something bigger going on. And the truth is that it was still happening in Jesus' day. Now, it's going to be important in just a minute. You'll see why that I'm pointing out that it's still happening in Jesus' day. But Solomon is looking at these people. He's teaching these people that we need to worship in an acceptable manner. 
We need to worship in a way that God says that is worship. And this is where I think Solomon's words really become important, helpful to us. Not because he's talking about going to a temple, but because as he deals with this, he is, he is not, he's not teaching us about a practice of worship. He's not teaching about a, a, a place of worship. He is teaching us about an attitude. In worship. An attitude, as I'll point out in just a minute, they never seem to get right. But even now, let's consider it even now. As we worship, as we gather in worship, we can be, if if not guarded, and we don't heed Solomon's warnings, and we don't listen to what he's teaching us, we can engage in worship that is vanity. And we can attend events, labels as worship gatherings. That's what, that's what we call this. Like if you look at our church calendar, our church schedule, this is the worship gathering. We can slap that label on all kinds of stuff. We got genres of music that we call worship music. We walk around saying, I'm going to worship. We can come into this gathering in, in, in which we join together and sing our songs. We can come into this gathering in which we shake hands and greet one another. And we seek to say regularly, it's not just the songs. But in worship, we greet one another. In honor of God, we greet one another. We can say that we have serve teams, teams that serve in an effort to put this morning on, to make this morning happen. We can even sit and listen to his word read and preached. And yet still not be able to discern from the outside and all the activity whether it is real worship or not. In fact, it's probably not you, but it may be the person sitting next to you. You could be sitting next to somebody who went through all the motions, but not once raised their voice to the Lord. We can gather in each other's homes during the week, have meals together, enjoy the benefits of being connected in this fellowship of the saints together enjoy the benefits that come from being around people who love Jesus and yet never worship we can strive to live in a life in a mo- our, our life in a moral and upright way we can put boundaries on the things like like I have boundaries on things I I, I won't watch movies that have ex- have, have sex ex- in them that I just I don't need that stuff in my life so I read before I, before I watch a movie, I go to IMDb and I start looking through, which almost is as bad because they're explaining it almost in an explicit manner. It's not necessarily helpful, but at least, you know, I'm not going to have the image that's just going to be running around in my head. At least I can have some understanding uh, before I enter in and allow some influence. I can put boundaries on my life that keep me from doing things that I know are dishonorable to God. I can even tell you that I do that so that I don't want to ruin my witness. I don't want to hurt my witness before God's people or those that are not yet God's people. I can tell you that there's honorable reasons for that. But yet, can I answer the question, is it worship? Is it acceptable worship? See, the truth is that these things were continuing to happen when Jesus was on the earth These things continued to be a problem for them. And that's why standing in front of the Pharisees, he he brings out Isaiah's prophecy against them. And he says in Matthew 15, 8 through 9, these aren't on the screen. Let me just read them. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain, some of the vanity that's possibly Solomon is referring to. In vain did they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. These people who lived upright lives, who gathered together in one another's homes, who went to temple and offered sacrifices, were not worshiping. Their lips spoke of the honor, but their hearts were nowhere associated with the honor of God. So here's the question. Have we worshiped? Are we worshiping? Are our lips honoring Jesus while our hearts are far from him? Is slapping the title worship on it enough? 
Obviously, I don't think so. I probably wouldn't be asking those questions if I thought so. In fact, I think that's why Solomon's words are so helpful to us. Because he doesn't talk about a practice. He doesn't talk about going to the temple and sacrificing the right animals on the right times and the right days. He doesn't tell us how much has to be done. He deals with our attitudes. He deals with our hearts. He calls us. He gives us a call to reverent worship. That's why even today I hear his words and I recognize that they are applicable, as applicable now as they were then. He helps us see a picture of reverently worshiping the sovereign God who he has put on display for all to see. If we'll just hear him. If we'll just listen. And I I, I would suggest that, that you could break it down in a number of ways. A lot of people I talked looked at, they broke it down in these four different pieces of advice he gave. I'm going to give you five things, I think, that, that I think demonstrate what reverent worship looks like based on what he teaches here. The call to a reverent worship is worship God purposefully. That's first and foremost, I think it's the part of the first command he gives us. He tells us, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Watch your steps. Look after your, the, the way you're going. Look at the direction you're walking. Don't let anything get in the way of you uh, uh, approaching God in worship. Make sure. Be purposeful. Be intentional. And we can say things, oh, even a blind squirrel finds a nut every now and then. Not in worship. It won't happen. We will never accidentally worship God. It cannot occur. We must think on Him. We must focus on Him. We must turn our hearts toward Him. If we're accidentally worshiping anything, it's something in this world. We must be purposeful as we approach God in worship. He's telling us guard our steps. I think we could just as easily say guard our hearts as we approach this God. Remember, because we're not physically stepping toward a temple, we're not physically stepping towards this building as the holy place in which we interact with God. But everything about what we think and what we do and what we believe demonstrates the difference between what we are, who, who or what we are really worshiping. If we are not purposeful, we will not worship God. I think it was Alistair Begg. I, I, I'm pretty sure it was Alistair Begg. If you've never listened to him, I'd encourage you to listen to him. He's, he's a solid guy. I'm listening to him as we work through, as, as we work through uh, Ecclesiastes. Uh, if you don't necessarily like, at least his uh, 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 accent would draw you in, and then, man, to hear the truth behind it is powerful. He makes a comment along, along the way in, in this passage that he, that he says, God, he, he judges worship not through the speaker's, not what, not, not what you hear on the outside. God judges worship with a stethoscope. What's going on in here? That's what makes all the difference between reverent worship, acceptable worship, and unacceptable worship, false worship. Point, acceptability of activity, right? That's... That's secondary. That's why he doesn't even address it here, because it's secondary. We can't do everything in a worshipful manner. We cannot sin to the glory of God. But there are all, all kinds of things that we can do to, to demonstrate our honor, but it doesn't matter a bit if our heart isn't about honoring God. A good example of this might be Cain and Abel. You think about it. Two brothers from the same family, as close to God as the other, right? Like they, they weren't separated from him by, by much distance. They had parents who had walked with him in the cool of the garden. It's not like they had to wonder, does God exist or not? And they both bring offerings to him. From the outside looking in, it's almost indiscernible any difference. So Cain brings stuff from his gardens. He's a, he's a farmer. He's bringing stuff from the ground that he raised. And he's bringing the stuff and he's laying it out for God. And, and here comes Abel, brings, some, brings a, a, a firstborn lamb and, and, and then fat portions off, off of the animals. And, and I, to, to look at the outside, how do you know the difference? But yet one is acceptable. Abel is acceptable. His offering is acceptable to God. And it tells us that Cain's wasn't. And Cain gets jealous and kills his brother. 
It's not until we get to the book of Hebrews that we really begin or give an insight into understanding what happened. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Okay, well, we knew that. Through which he was commanded as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. We know that Abel's sacrifice is more acceptable to God, but now we know why. The heart with which he did it. A heart that believed and trusted God. A heart that looked at God with faith. This is radically different. Even if it appears to be the same on the outside, it's the difference between what what separates you and I from the Pharisees standing in front of Jesus as he says to them, "Your, your lips honor me, but your hearts are far from me. It's not the practice that makes the difference, it's the heart. An intentionality, a a faith that leads us to approach Him, a purpose in approaching Him because He is God. We worship God purposefully. We worship God thankfully, I think is the next, or thoughtfully, I'm sorry. Worship God thoughtfully. He keeps going immediately. He says, guard your steps as you go, when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps when you go to worship, we'll say. To draw near to listen, listen, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. We get in a better than statement. It's, it's better just to sit and be still and listen and not say anything. I don't know how often we really do that in worship, right? Like now you are. But immediately we walk in, we're starting talking to God. I love, I, I, I really appreciate, as a result of this, I've really grown to appreciate this moment where Matt and the band stands up here, they strum a few things and they call us to just prepare our hearts. Just sit and be quiet for a minute. Prepare your mind for this. Prepare your heart for this. Direct your thoughts and your attention and your attitude towards the Lord. It's better to just sit and be quiet than than to come in and making the sacrifice of fools. What's the sacrifice of fools? Well, I think he explains what the sacrifice of fools is in the rest of this context. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven, you are on earth. I think the sacrifice of fools is us just going off and running our mouths, just saying all these things that, that, that are rash, that aren't really true, that there's no substance to. It's driven by emotional and flighty responses. I mean, it isn't. I mean, you just consider it. Consider this. When was the last time you walked out of something and said, man, we really worshiped God today? Like, what was it that made you believe you had really worshipped hard that day? Again, maybe it's not you. Maybe it's the person sitting next to you. But much of the ways that we determine whether we've worshipped that day is this emotional response. In fact, that's what many churches are doing, seeking just to give people this emotive response. Now, don't misunderstand. If you, if you encounter God, I think you're going to emote something, right? If you run into and perceive and encounter the living God, we see the emotional response over and over and over. People fall flat on their faces. They respond in humility and falling flat. Not going on with a bunch of words. In fact, the one man who said a lot of words before God, finally, when God steps up and says, hey, Put your pants on, dress like a man, come and answer me. He then says, oh, I'll shut up. That was Job, in case you're wondering. 38 through 41, you can go read about what he had to do. You, you, you got a plan for me? You got something to say to me? I spoke without thinking. I'm not going to say anything else. I think, and I want to be careful because I... It may not be you. It may be the people sitting next to you. I think our culture is fought too hard for the emotional response when if we would just center our hearts on the Lord and think about Him, we would naturally emote. We would naturally feel. But it wouldn't be based on something without substance. It wouldn't be based on the fact that there's lights shining on our faces and smoke going over our heads and our hands are raised and we feel really good in this moment. It would be because the eternal sovereign God who rules all things is before us. Tell me that's not worth getting excited about. 
Tell me that's not something worth adoring and singing words of praise in response to him. Solomon talks about all this activity. Dreams are full of busyness. This false reality we live in, if you will, is full of biz- business, activity. is all this stuff, this empty activity that's meaningless and empty. It's got no substance. Because people aren't thoughtfully considering the God who is. God is in heaven, creator, living above the sun, living beyond the futility. And yet we would come in and think our little bitty words would have something to offer him. How arrogant. Man, I'm not saying we don't speak. I'm not saying we don't emote. But I'm suggesting that if it's authentic, if it's, if it's received by God, it's because God has put it there. We sang a song just a minute ago. It's not, again, not part of my notes. Sorry, you just have to deal with this. But we sang a song a minute ago about this is your breath in me. Real worship starts with God. Not the musicians. Not the atmosphere. Not because we have the right stuff on the walls. Not because we have the right uh, uh, attraction It's because God has condescended to stand in front of men and enabled us to experience him. You want to worship in in, 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 in an acceptable way? Think about God. Let your heart and mind dwell on him. And you won't be able to help but worship him in an acceptable way. I think the next thing we see Solomon calling us to is worship God faithfully. So he says first, you know, worship God purposefully, then worship God thoughtfully. And then he comes to this place and he says, when you vow a vow, this is verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better, another better than statement, it's better that you should not vow than, than that you should vow and not pay. So the vow is voluntary. He's not saying you have to vow anything. But if you're going to vow something, make sure you follow through. Be faithful in your walk. Be faithful in those things you commit to, those things that you promise. Jesus addresses this in the New Testament. And he's not teaching us don't vow. He's teaching us that when you make promises, when you make commitments, you don't have to swear by God. You don't have to swear by the Bible. You don't have to swear by all these things. Just let your yes be yes. When you say, yes, I'm, I, I promise this, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. It's voluntary to make the vow. But when you make it, when you say yes, follow through. This is what worship looks like. We, 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 we have examples of this all over our lives. Husbands and wives vow to one another. They promise. We don't have to stand up before the world and say, by God's Great power and mercy, I will let your yes be yes. If you're going to promise, if you're going to stand and, and enter a marriage covenant and you're going to promise to, to be faithful to your spouse for a lifetime, do it. Be faithful in your life. We don't disconnect this, don't, don't misunderstand. We don't disconnect this from the purposefulness of it, right? The, 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 the thoughtfulness towards God, the purpose of it. But as we begin to practice, as the thoughts and the attentions and the, the purposes of our mind and heart begin to move into our hands, we actually follow through. In a church life, again, we, we have an example of this. We, we participate in this church in covenant membership. We don't ask you to stand up and, and, and confirm for everybody, like, oh, man, we got this long, wordy covenant that we're going to say by, by this and that, my mom's great uncle, because he made me able, and we're not going to be making swears and, and all that stuff in light of things, but when we come together as members of this church, we promise to each other, essentially, we promise to each other to live in a biblical manner. 
with God and each other in mind. And if you're going to say it, do it. Follow through. This is what it looks like to live an acceptable worship before God, to be faithful. We don't turn around and say, oh, well, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. We're not flippant about the reality of it, right? That's what he gets to. We worship God purposefully. We worship God thoughtfully. We worship God, uh, um, and I'm on it, faithfully, sorry. And we worship God honestly. We don't, we don't, we don't say we're going to do something and then not follow through and, and, and try to make excuses for it. He says, he says it in, in, in verse uh, 6. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Don't let your mouth write checks you can't cash. And you're not willing to cash because that's typically the bigger problem. It's that I said it in this mo- moment of emotion and excitement. Like we sing the song Oceans. We, it's a powerful song. It's this great song. I think it's a, a great prayer that we should be praying that God would lead us to places where, where uh, what's the words? Lead me to a place where, I forgot it, somebody that sings, what is it? Faith without borders. Lead me to a place where my faith is without borders, right? Do you know what you're saying? Like you, we're praying a prayer as we sing this song? Have you ever considered the words of that song? Have you ever thoughtfully considered what you're saying before this God? You're asking him to put you in a place where you experience such great levels of trouble that you only have him to trust. I'm not suggesting we should quit singing the song. I'm just suggesting that when we sing it, we should mean it. And then we shouldn't turn around and say, God, I didn't mean that. Take the trouble from me. It's too much for me. Yeah, it probably is. So that you'll trust him more. We worship God honestly. We speak truth. Now, I love this. I love this. This is important because because we have arguments in the church about precision. But remember, God is looking at what's going on in a person's heart. And I'm not about to suggest that we shouldn't seek to be precise in our language, that we shouldn't speak to speak words that are true. But just because someone comes up to you and says something that seems a little off to you doesn't mean that God can't see their heart and say, that's my child who is worshiping me. You just consider this. And as an illustration, take it for what it's worth. When our kids run up to us and they say something that they don't understand what it means. Here's a perfect example. I, I, I won't say, I, there's, there's a kid I know, and I have heard the story, I hadn't heard it with my own ears. Beautiful little girl, who sometimes when she says shark, it sounds like she says something inappropriate. Do her parents look at her and smack her across the mouth and belittle her and condemn her? No. Because that's not the heart that's in that, that word. They understand that she doesn't fully understand what's happening. She doesn't have a full comprehension of what's at work in the world. Do we? Are we not God's children who are, who are fighting hard for precision but must be accepted based on the faith that's in our heart? The attitudes that, that he's built in us that, that come to him completely dependent. If we ever get to a place where our language is more precise and better and, and we think then we are no different than the Pharisees. We, we, we fight for truth, but we don't disconnect this honesty from the reality that this starts in faith and that none of us have arrived in a place where we can speak with such precision that we don't make mistakes. Brothers and sisters, it is God's word that gives us truth. That's why it's so integral in the reality of our worship. We don't stand on our opinions or our perspectives or even our man-made doctrines. That's why I'm slow to teach a topic about the five, a a, a topical sermon on doctrine. Because it's not our systematics. 
that make us holy and righteous before God. It is God by his power who has done it, and he has shown us how he has done it in his word. We don't need more than that. Systematics have their place, but it's the doctrine that seeps out of the word of God as God speaks to us through it. We just, we just need to live in it. We need to recognize it. We seek to worship God honestly so that our mouths aren't saying a bunch of things that aren't true. But we can't go so far as to say that we can't say something in accidentally. God knows your heart. Trust him. That's why we must approach him purposefully. And finally... I think this speaks to all of them. We worship God reverently. At the end of verse 7, at the end of verse 7, he says, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. He's showing us a worship that is unacceptable. Showing us a worship that is it's not real. It's not true. It looks like a lot of activity. It looks like a lot of good things, but it's empty. It's futile. It does not accomplish what we would intend it to accomplish. It doesn't really honor God. But, he says, but God is the one you must fear. This is the second command. It's the second imperative that he gives us as we read this. Worship God purposefully. Worship God uh, thoughtfully. Worship God faithfully. Worship God uh, honestly. Worship God reverently. Fear Him. Now, I'll say this probably every time, every time we ever deal with this, because I think it's such a hard concept for us, it's very difficult for us to understand the concept of fearing this God. We've, we've grown so accustomed to the reality that we approach him in Christ that, that it's hard for us to deal with the idea of fearing God. So when we hear that, we're like, well, we want to move really quickly to the reverential fear, that, that adoration, that, that respect, that, that reality that I look at him as a father. And, and, and in the same way my father will discipline me, I have a fear of that. I think we have to be careful to run there too quickly. In fact, it's, it's a sad reality. Of, sometimes I think because the church runs there so quickly, the very people that should be quaking in their boots over God aren't being told that they should fear Him. They, they don't know that God is a, a God of wrath, a God of judgment, a God who would condemn them forever if they wouldn't come to Him. And we run so fast to that. And don't misunderstand, we should be there. But the people who are there are only there because at some point we realize God is to be feared. And it wasn't until we, we feared Him in the sense of condemnation and outcast and, and wrath that we were able to find His mercy. It's ironic to me that the people who Learned to fear God, found His mercy. The people who should be fearing God just continue to write Him off. It is a difficult concept for us. This week, as I was thinking on this and praying through this, Amy is reading uh, the books, the, the, the Chronicles of Narnia, and she's in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I was reminded of a, of a point. Lewis is introducing Aslan, uh, which is the lion. It's the, kind of the Christ figure. He'll tell you it's not an allegory, but that he certainly fills the role of Christ in these stories. The four children are in Narnia. They have met these two beavers. And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are talking about Aslan, and they tell, tell the kids that he is a lion. And this is their response. Susan going first. She says, oh, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either brave, braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. You know why we don't? Why we can move to reverential worship before this God. It's not because he's safe. It's because he's good. 
And he has allowed us to enjoy his goodness through his son, Jesus Christ. Here's the sad news about this whole thing. These people would have heard this. Oh, worship God in this way. And they would have said, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, that's we're all about that. We're God's people. We are the covenant people. We're going to worship God in this way. And the sad news is that when Jesus stood before them, he didn't say, thank you for your worship. He said, your lips honor me, but your hearts are far from me. You see, the sad reality is these people never learn to fear this God. And because of that, they would never guard their steps closely as they approached him in worship. They wouldn't approach him. They wouldn't worship him thoughtfully. They wouldn't worship him faithfully. They would not worship him in anything. And there's a sadder story to tell. We're still doing it. All across our city, across our nation, even around the world, there are people gathering, consuming religious materials, seeking to get something out of it for themselves, seeking to justify themselves by it. pretending to worship God when they are truly worshiping self. But here's the good news. We don't have to. We don't have to. In Christ, we have been invited and empowered to reverently worship God in all of life. We can. He didn't just say do it. He said here's how it's done. It's in me. In Romans 12.1 where Paul is, is, is finishing up his exposition, his explanation of the gospel. He comes to this place. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, by the very mercy of him you do this. Present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We don't do this by our own efforts, our own powers, our own acceptability. We do it by entering in through the mercy of God that comes in Jesus Christ. We are invited in and empowered to do the very thing he calls us to do. We read it already in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. The, the writer says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by, by, by the confidence of Jesus, we're able to enter into the presence of God and worship him. That's done by Christ. You don't stand there by your own doing. You don't stand there by your own might, not by the, by the talent of the musician or the, or, or, or the thickness of the smoke and the light shining through. You don't stand there because you've got the right atmosphere. You don't stand there by any other reason except the holy, or you stand in that place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean, we are able to stand there righteous before him because he hath cleansed us. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies with, uh, washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Just be faithful in this confession, right? That's the call. That's the explanation. That's the idea that we don't just say uh, yeah, I believe. And then go off acting like we don't. We follow through. When we make the promise, when we let the yes be yes, we faithfully follow it. Because we have thought of him. We have considered him. We have trusted him. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as that is the habit of some. But encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, we are invited in and empowered to reverently worship God in all of life. And then finally, let me just give you one last verse, Colossians 3, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. There's a whole section here. I'll just read the first two verses and the last of the section. If then you have been raised with Christ, 
You see that? If you've been raised with Christ, if you are alive in Christ, seek the things that are above. Seek the thing. Watch your steps. Purposefully approach Him. Seek after Him. Go for Him. Run. Pursue. However you want to say it, get to Him. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of Oh, I need to turn my page. Of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Then he goes through these two sections of how we put off the old and put on the new. How we walk away from sin. How we put it out of our lives and how we cling to the things of living a right and holy life in front of God. And he sums it up this way in verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, or word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him in Christ we can worship in an acceptable manner not because we say all the right words but because we have been given a heart to honor him to worship him to long for him to pursue him to be faithful to be thoughtful see reverent worship isn't about the practice before it's about the heart and the reason these people were continuing to worship something other than God is because they had no heart in Christ, God has given you the heart to worship Him. So what? What do I do? Worship Him. Do it. Give your life to it. Don't let anything stand in the way. Guard your steps toward it as you approach Him in all of life. Don't, don't, don't flippantly do it with just empty words and lots of activity. Give your action, give your practice to purpose. Do it because you mean it. So, so, so purposefully, thoughtfully, faithfully, not, consistently, when it, going gets tough, you don't stop. You keep going. You endure. Because this is the heart he's given you. This is acceptable worship. And it's yours in Christ. So do it. Let's worship him. Let's pray. Father, how desperately we need you. Even our worship is empty apart from you. We had nothing of worth to raise to you until you gave it to us. So help us be grateful. Help us, Father, express it rightly. Not, 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 not to consume it, not to make it about us, not to make it self-centric, but the, the breath that you put in us, would we use it to honor you? The heart that you put in us, the mind that you put in us, would we use it to honor you? Help us. Pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.